bringing you the latest in tax credit news. This is Tax Credit Tuesday with your host, Michael Novogratik. Hello, I'm Michael Novogratik, and this is Tax Credit Tuesday. Today is Tuesday, September 4th, 2018. I hope you all had a nice Labor Day weekend. Now, as hard as it may be to believe for many of us, I'm certainly it is for me, this Thursday marks 10 years since Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac were placed under conservatorship, that in the wake of the Great Recession. Now, 10 years later, Fannie and Freddie are still under conservatorship, and their future remains in question. In fact, the House Financial Services Committee is holding a hearing this Thursday entitled A Failure to Act, How a Decade Without GSE Reform Has Once Again Put Taxpayers at Risk. I'll share highlights of that hearing in next week's podcast. Now, we have an excellent podcast for you today as you get back to work after Labor Day. Our discussion this week is going to start on the tax front with an assessment of possible timeframes when Congress might consider acting on a second round of tax reform, as well as the possibility, emphasis on possibility, of executive action to index capital gains for inflation. From there, we focus on financial institutions with a review of the opportunity we now all have to comment on ways to improve the Community Reinvestment Act regulations. I'll also touch on an upcoming House Financial Services Committee hearing on the cost of multifamily housing regulations. Now, we also have HUD news, notably news about fiscal year 2019 fair market rents. And we're going to close with an overview of a new Novogratz blog post, a post that addresses common misconceptions about the long-term housing tax credit. And we have news about state legislation in California that could mean an increase in renewable energy property development over the next few years. If you're ready, let's get started. Starting with tax reform, Bloomberg Tax News is reporting that certain rank-and-file House Republicans are worried that a push to advance Tax Reform 2.0 this fall could hurt Republicans running for re-election in certain toss-up states. Now, as I've reported in previous podcasts, House Republicans have been eager to release a second round of tax cuts this fall to make last year's individual and small business tax cuts permanent. House GOP leaders were hoping that a push for permanent tax cuts would appeal to voters heading into the midterm elections in November. However, approval ratings for the tax reform law enacted last year are lower than Republicans hoped. Various polls report approval ratings of about 40% or less. Now, Bloomberg Tax says that certain House Republicans are concerned that Tax Reform 2.0 might harm, not help, the GOP in the upcoming election. And, even if the House Ways and Means Committee does advance a tax bill, there's no guarantee that the full House would vote on it. Now, a push for another round of tax cuts before November would not only be difficult to pass, but the inevitable pushback from Democrats could also be used against House Republicans trying to hold on to their seats. Now, a couple of the GOP incumbents in toss-up districts are also members of the tax-writing House Ways and Means Committee, namely Carlos Cobello of Florida and Peter Roskam of Illinois, who's also the chairman of the Subcommittee on Tax Policy. Now, looking to the Senate side, Senate Republican Conference Chairman John Thune of South Dakota thinks that the odds of Congress considering tax legislation before November are poor. However, Senator Thune said that a deal at the end of the year 
when both sides are incentivized to negotiate might be possible. But what's even more likely in the post-election lame-duck session of Congress, more likely than Tax Reform 2.0, is a tax corrections bill. And that, of course, is a bill that could provide an opportunity to advance low-income tax credit, new markets tax credit, and historic tax credit provisions, as well as perhaps some technical corrections to the Opportunity Zones law. Speaking of Republican tax priorities, President Donald Trump told Bloomberg last Thursday that he's considering executive action to reduce taxes on investment income by indexing capital gains to inflation. Here's how it would work. Let's say an investor bought an asset in the year 2000 for $1 million. And let's assume in 2018, the investor sold that asset for $5 million. Under current law, the investor would generally be taxed on the $4 million difference, $5 million minus the $1 million paid in 2000. Now, the plan that Trump's considering would adjust that base year value of $1 million for inflation. So the $1 million asset value would be adjusted to $1.4 million in 2018. As such, the taxable gain would be $3.6 million, or $400,000 less than the $4 million under current rules. Now, conservatives do support indexing capital gains to inflation, and they argue that such a move would boost the economy. And Treasury Secretary Steve Mnuchin has said that his department is looking into a capital gains cut if Congress doesn't take legislative action. Now, Democrats, you're probably not surprised, oppose indexing capital gains to inflation, and they say that Treasury does not have the authority to cut capital gains on its own without congressional action. Now, Congress is unlikely to pass legislation index capital gains this year. I should probably say they're highly unlikely to do so. That's because a bill to do so would need the support of some Senate Democrats. Now, whether the Trump administration will try to index capital gains through executive action does remain to be seen. Now, one of the tax incentives created under last year's tax bill that would be affected by a change in capital gains is the Opportunity Zones provisions. One of the key benefits of the Opportunity Zones incentive is the ability to temporarily defer capital gains that are reinvested in a qualified opportunity fund. But there's also provision that allows a elimination of, of tax on appreciation if you hold the asset for 10 years. Now, to the extent that the basis of an asset was adjusted for inflation in order to determine your calculation of any gain on sale, then the benefits of stepping an asset up to fair market value after 10 years by investing in opportunity zones wouldn't be nearly as great. Now, we've not done the actual calculations as to the magnitude of the potential impact on yield. And to the extent that it seems that this adjustment, this inflation indexing of basis for capital gains, that some sort of executive action is likely to happen, then we will run such cal calculations here at Novogratic. In the meantime, we'll wait and see. Now, again, no legislative or executive actions have been enacted yet. And we'll keep an eye on it and report on it in future podcasts as conditions warrant. Next, I want to give you an update on news that I reported on in last week's podcast related to financial institutions. I had said last week that the Office of the Comptroller of the Currency, or the OCC, was planning to release a proposal on modernizing the Community Reinvestment Act, or CRA. Well, right after I recorded last week's podcast, the OCC did indeed publish its advance notice of proposed rulemaking in the Federal Register. Now, in the Federal Register notice, the OCC sought comments, or asked for comments, 
on ways to modernize CRA regulations in order to better serve communities. Now, the CRA encourages insured depository institutions to meet the credit needs of their communities, including low and moderate income neighborhoods. And as many of you know, CRA is often an important factor in low income housing tax credit and new markets tax credit investments. Developments in hot CRA markets can often command a higher price per credit than those in areas that aren't as hot for CRA markets. So if you're looking for equity pricing in a hot market, it's likely to be higher than your equity pricing in a not so hot market. As such, any revisions to CRA regulations could affect both equity pricing as well as the demand for long housing tax credits and new markets tax credit across America and in particular communities. Now, the OCC's notice last week invites stakeholders to comment on topics in a variety of areas, such as increasing lending and services to people in areas most in need, clarifying and expanding the types of activities eligible for CRA consideration, and improving the timeliness of CRA regulatory decisions. The OCC said that stakeholders' comments may inform specific policy proposals or future rulemakings. So, if you have any ideas or comments on how CRA regulations should be improved, now's the time to share them. Comments are due 75 days after the publication of the notice in the Federal Register, and you can go to today's podcast show notes for the email where you can send your comments. I'll also tweet out that email. Now, there is also a link to a Notes from the Rec blog post in today's show notes on how CRA changes could affect demand for the low-income housing tax credit and new markets tax credit. Now, let's stay on the topic of financial services, or more specifically, the House Financial Services Committee. The Subcommittee on Housing and Insurance is holding a hearing this Wednesday, September 5th, on the cost of regulation on affordable multifamily development. The hearing is going to focus on the various federal and state and local regulations and policies that affect affordable multifamily housing development. Now, this is going to be a one-panel hearing with four witnesses. The witnesses are Ms. Sue Ansel. Sue is President and Chief Executive Officer of Gables Residential and speaking on behalf of the National Multifamily Housing Council. Also, Mr. Stephen E. Lawson, Chairman of the Lawson Companies, speaking on behalf of the National Association of Home Builders. And we have Ms. Erica Potig, Vice President Chief Innovation Officer at the Urban Institute, and Mr. James H. Schlomer, Chief Executive Officer of Continental Properties Company. Now, the hearing announcement that was sent out by the committee majority staff noted that numerous studies suggest that housing trends in the United States will dramatically change for the next 25 years as more individuals opt to rent housing rather than become homeowners. Now, the studies, this memo notes, suggest that this trend will accelerate for seniors, young professionals, and working families. Now, the committee announcement also observes that recent studies suggest that multifamily development can be subject to a significant array of regulatory costs, including a broad range of fees, standards, and other requirements that are imposed at different stages of the development and construction process. Now, all of our developer listeners certainly are aware of that. Now, the stated purpose of the hearing is to identify regulatory barriers that inhibit or prevent the development of affordable housing, as well as to assess how these barriers affect the cost of building and maintaining affordable housing, and perhaps most importantly, to offer suggestions on how such policies should change 
to meet the future demand for such units. This is an important hearing, and we're going to report back on the outcome of the hearing in next week's podcast. So let's stay on the topic of housing, and I want to note that HUD last Friday published fiscal year 2019 fair market rents, or FMRs. The new FMRs go into effect October 1st, that is, unless HUD receives a request for reevaluation of a specific FMR. HUD also responded to a Federal Register notice from May on the use of FMR surveys in calculating renewal funding inflation factors. HUD plans to continue, they said, using the surveys in calculating renewable funding inflation factors. Now, comments on the fiscal year 2019 FMRs or request reevaluation must be submitted by October 1st. And if you are interested in considering a request for reevaluation for a particular jurisdiction, I encourage you to contact my partner, Brad Weinberg, as soon as possible. I'll include his contact information in today's show notes, as well as tweet out a link. We'll also include in the show notes a link to the fiscal year 2019 FMRs. Now, Novogradic is analyzing the FMR changes, and I'll report trends in a future podcast. That said, my partner Thomas Stagg couldn't help but spend his Liberty weekend analyzing these FMRs, and he does have some initial observations he wanted me to share with you. He noted that the FMRs for 2019 continued the trend of increasing limits. FMRs increased by 2.49% on average. Now, this is slightly less than the increases in 2018, which were 3.03%. Now, over 70% of the area's FMRs, but while this means the overall trend was up, around 29% of the areas did have a decrease in rents. Now, in 2018, by comparison, only 22% of areas had a decrease. Metropolitan areas did tend to have better increases than non-metropolitan areas. The average increase for metropolitan areas was over 3.5%, whereas non-metropolitan areas had an average increase of about 1.7%. Like I said, more details in a future podcast, and if you have any questions in the interim, please reach out to my partner, Thomas Stagg. In other news, the Urban Institute recently released a series of reports on the low-income housing tax credit. Now, I encourage you to read a blog post by my colleague, Peter Lawrence on what the Urban Institute report got right about the long housing tax credit and what the report got wrong. Now, it's important to note that I agree with much of Urban's reports, including that the low-income housing tax credit is crucial to the nation's safety net and deserves scrutiny as the largest affordable rental housing production program. However, there are a few misleading and inaccurate arguments that I wanted to point out. For example, one of the Urban Institute reports suggests that low-income housing tax credit units exacerbate poverty concentration and racial segregation. On the contrary, some research has shown that low-income housing tax credit properties are associated with declines in racial segregation. Furthermore, studies claiming a connection between increased poverty rates and the location of low-income housing tax credit developments have flawed methodologies, such as failing to distinguish new construction from acquisition rehabilitation when evaluating poverty concentration and racial segregation. As always, it's important to address any misinformation, especially when it comes to important programs such as the Low-Income Housing Tax Credit. A link to Peter's blog post is in today's show notes, as well as I'll tweet it out. Now let's turn to state news. The California State Legislature last week approved a bill to adopt a zero-carbon resources policy. Now if Governor Jerry Brown signs the bill, 
100% of all retail sales of electricity to California end users and 100% of electricity procured to serve all state agencies must be carbon free by December 31, 2045. If enacted, the bill will certainly mean significantly increased interest in building more wind and solar properties. Now, another California state bill would require the state to procure 4,250 megawatts of qualified renewable energy resources, meaning certain energy resources that are eligible for specified federal tax credits. That minimum must include at least 2,500 megawatts of wind and solar energy. Now, if these energy bills, renewable energy bills, are enacted, we can expect a big push for wind and solar property development in California before the investment tax credit and production tax credit expire. Well, that brings it to the end of this report. But before I close, I want to share that the National Trust for Stroke Preservation is hosting its annual Past Forward National Preservation Conference in San Francisco. It's being held November 13th through the 16th. It's a great event, and I've included a link to register for the event in today's show notes, and you guessed it, I'll tweet out a link as well. That's it for now. I'm Michael Novogratik. Thanks for listening. This weekly podcast has been brought to you by Novogratik and Company, LLP. Archived podcasts are available online at www.novaco.com forward slash podcast or by subscribing to the Tax Credit Tuesday podcast in iTunes. You can find related links referenced in this podcast in our show notes at www.novaco.com forward slash podcast. Novogratik & Company LLP is a national certified public accounting and consulting firm with offices nationwide. Learn more about our professional services at www.novaco.com.